Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. What never fails to surprise people is the extensive variety of types of procedures that a plastic surgeon can perform. Sure, most people are aware of the cosmetic surgery skills plastic surgeons are famous for, but what we are actually capable of doing goes so far beyond that. Remember that the word plastic in plastic surgery comes from the Greek word plastikos, which means to change the shape of something, and that's not always for cosmetic reasons. So for this episode, I thought it would be interesting to invite a young, well-trained plastic surgeon to speak about all that is encompassed by the field of plastic surgery. Listen in as we talk about this fascinating subject and discuss some interesting patient cases along the way. Fair warning, on occasion the stories may be a bit graphic. So, buckle up, here we go. Well, today I'm pleased to have with me Dr. Spencer Egan. He is a plastic surgeon in private practice and a managing partner with Ascentis Healthcare, which is a multi-specialty entity. Welcome, Dr. Egan. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. And today we are going to have some fun because we're going to talk about all of the different things that a plastic surgeon can do. There really is such a broad spectrum of cases that we might see, of categories of surgeries we might do. And I really want to explore that with you. Uh, You've had some great training and uh, broad spectrum practice now. And so I would love it if we could kind of go through some categories of plastic surgery and maybe you could help illustrate that with a case you or perhaps a colleague had that would be interesting to the listeners and help show what a wide variety of things plastic surgeons have to offer. Absolutely and I I need to do a little plug for Dr. Newhan and how amazing she is and how big how big of a role she was with my career. I actually shadowed her in in medical school, and she's one of the kind of driving forces for why I went into plastic surgery. And so anything that you ask me to do, I'm always honored to, you know, do it and just know I've got nothing but respect for you. And I was always very impressed with you and your practice. And thank you. You you were a big part of me being a plastic surgeon. So I I can't leave this conversation without, (laughs) you know, giving a little plug to you and how you kind of helped to guide my career. That's great. Well, it's nice to hear. And you were always such a bright student and uh, I knew you were going places and I was glad to see the direction was headed towards plastic surgery. So congrats. Um, 
Well, hey, let's get right into it. Um, you know, I did write down some categories of plastic surgery that I think, you know, the public isn't always aware of. Most people think of plastic surgery as cosmetic surgery or aesthetic surgery only. And we sure do a lot of that. And that is very fun. But there is a lot more to it than that. So I would love to talk about some of those other things. But let's first discuss cosmetic surgery, though, because even within that category, there is such a broad variety of what we can do. You know, we do anything from the head to the feet, whatever people need, we're there for it. And how is your practice right now? Do you have a pretty wide range of cosmetic procedures that you do? My practice, I would say, has done kind of an opposite shift since since going private. When when I was employed through a major healthcare system, I was about eighty percent reconstructive, about twenty percent cosmetic. And since I went private, I've shifted to about seventy percent cosmetic, thirty percent reconstructive, and. The one aspect that I, I focus on probably the most on the reconstructive side is breast cancer reconstruction, mm-hmm. and that, that's yeah. an aspect that I'll never walk away from, regardless of you know how busy the the aesthetics and you know the cosmetic component is. But pretty rewarding, isn't it? Yeah, very very rewarding. It, it's challenging. You know, you don't yeah. do it because it's easy, um, yeah. but it, it's it's very rewarding. But I also still do some of the hand stuff. But the the general scope of reconstructive was more a part of my career about you know the previous about ten years. Yeah, well, that's that's wonderful and very noble. Um, you know, as we're talking about cosmetic surgery, we can do so many things now in terms of facial rejuvenation body rejuvenation, recontouring, and do you want to just kind of list off some of the things that a plastic surgeon can do just in terms of aesthetic surgery? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was looking into going into plastic surgery, I only thought plastic surgeons did aesthetics. And I I was shadowing uh, an anesthesiologist up in Wisconsin, and they were resecting a big component of the bone. And they said, oh, a plastic surgeon's going to come in and fix this defect. In my mind, I'm like, are they going to put an implant on it? And so it's kind of funny. I, I think, you know, the public you know, associates it with only cosmetics. Granted, it's a big part of our practice, but it's not all we do. And, uh, you know, but we do everything from head to toe. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, brow lift or blepharoplasty, upper and lower eyelids, variances of, of facelifts. And, you know, a lot has changed even just over the course of kind of how I think through facial aging. You know, we're trying to think through it in terms of, you know, the components that are due to gravity, which is the lift part, but also replacing mm-hmm. the volume, which is yes. the, the fat grafting component. And I, I would say, you know, the, the fat grafting and how that plays into various aspects of cosmetic surgery has probably been one of the more exciting things for me in the past, really? you know, five yeah, days. Useful new tool, isn't it? Yeah. And just for the listeners, fat grafting is basically harvesting some excess fat where it's not wanted in the body and repositioning it to a new area and where it could be useful. And you're talking about the face to restore volume and contour. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's used to, you know, increase volume in the breast or to sculpt around uh, the imperfections that you see in implants with reconstructive surgery. And, you know, you hear about gluteal augmentation and 
things like that, adding it to the buttock and other areas of the body. It's a, it's a very useful tool. And so yeah. pretty much anything with the face falls within the scope of plastics and, you know, and moving kind of down the body, you know, obviously breast surgery is a big component, whether it's, you know, lifts or reductions or augmentations or combinations of, of the two. Any part of the body where you have excess skin, that becomes a component where plastic surgeons play into. And over the course of my career, we've always been associated with weight loss clinics. And so a lot of it is trying to help, you know, those patients for their physical appearance to kind of match, you know, the mental and all the hard work that went into losing the weight. So to resect the skin, whether it's the arms or the, the belly or the legs and you know, all, all those are, you know, very, very valuable, you know, procedures for, for patients uh, to kind of yeah. get closer to the end of their weight loss journey. And for people who just have a little bit of irregularities here and there and don't need a major change, but would like a little reduction of fat in a certain area or tightening of some skin in a certain area, maybe even after having a baby, uh, mommy makeovers, you yeah. do those, I know, a lot of those. Yep, it's it's probably the most most common procedure that that I do, and it, it's kind of a, a catch-all term, meaning that mm-hmm. you know if you're doing ten you know quote unquote mommy makeovers, uh, you're rarely doing the same thing, and and a lot ah, yes. is kind of tailoring it to the needs of the patient, and yeah. you know the especially the the trunk stuff, you know when we we all love having kids, but. You know, you see what it does to the belly wall and the dual nature of a standard tummy tuck, even in a non-weight loss scenario, being able to realign those muscles and cut out mm-hmm. the skin. It's a very, you know, rewarding and valuable experience for, for patients. Oh, yeah. I, I Usually they're thrilled and kind of life-changing for people, so I think that's pretty wonderful. Well, let's get into some of the non-cosmetic topics and I'd like to talk about craniofacial surgery. Could you let the listeners know what that is? Do you have any examples of that that you might have been involved in? Yeah, in training at uh, University of Missouri, we had a, a craniofacial clinic that was a multidisciplinary clinic, and we, we really saw a broad scope of whether whether it was you know pediatric craniofacial versus you know traumatic craniofacial. So, just kind of a kind of catch-all term for you know, meaning anything with the, the cranium. The head skull. And with the face. Kind of like the structure of it. Absolutely. And I guess to even take a step back, one, one of the fun things about plastic surgery is that not only do we we deal with you know skin, we, we deal with bone, we deal with tendons, we do, deal with ligaments. Yes. And that, that kind of plays into kind of the versatility of, of what our field has become. And it's, it's the same thing with the face, whether it's a fracture, whether it's nasal cartilage, whether it's a soft tissue defect, you have to always think through, you know, one, you know, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again when it's traumatic, yeah. and two, when, when it's functional or uh, congenital, trying to replace like with, with like. So like with congenital surgery or birth defects and that kind of thing, you know, plastic surgeons take care of cleft lips, cleft palates, or even what we call craniosynostoses, or basically skulls that 
are not forming properly in the baby and are becoming misshapen. And what can plastic surgeons do in those cases? Very interesting that, that you picked that. It's one of the most impressive uh, procedures that, that I've been a part of involving pediatric craniofacial. And, you know, there, there's various ways that the skull forms where some of the bones essentially fuse together and then they grow in a direction that's that's just not the typical growth of the skull. So then you're trying to think through how do you reshape the skull. So these were surgeries on very little kids where you're, you're essentially taking off the uh, entire top part of the, the skull um, and reshaping it to make more space for the brain and for for growth and to create essentially a, a better you know appearance it, that, that is another one that is more functional to you know make, make more space but um, also if you think about the long-term effects of you know children and even as it gets into adulthood of you know misshapen skull there, there's a lot that goes goes yeah. with that the social implications absolutely yeah so uh, correcting those or trying to improve those at a very young age when that bone tissue is a little more pliable and easier to work with and those plates of the skull haven't fused together fully. We've got a little bit of ability to manipulate. That's perfect timing. Yeah. Those are fascinating cases and it's really remarkable what can be done these days. I think many parents are really flabbergasted by how much a plastic surgeon can improve the situation for a child who really needs it. Absolutely. You know, the other pediatric surgery that kind of came to my mind was something called myelomeningocele. Another name for that people might be familiar with is spina bifida. Could you explain that and explain what a plastic surgeon might do to help that situation? So essentially, it's an opening to the spinal cord central nervous system. Kind of open to the air, so like it didn't close up. Absolutely. And so that's another one where there's functional implications and the importance of early coverage. And there's various ways to do it. And the key is making sure you get everything covered. And usually, you know, you're doing rotational muscle flaps to cover those areas. But really what you're thinking through is just getting durable coverage over that area so that the, the child can kind of grow and develop and minimize the, the defects that are associated yeah. with kind of what was an unfortunate aspect of you know, birth. Yeah, and risk of infection too, you know, meningitis and that kind of thing with exposure to the outside world and not being fully covered. I do remember uh, back in my practice, as you say, rotating some flaps of tissue, rearranging muscles of the back and skin and fat of the back to try to cover that open area. Those were always fascinating cases and it's a little bit unnerving sometimes working on such a tiny little patient. You know, you have to be so careful. Everything must go just right, and uh, usually it does. Let's talk about the category of trauma, injuries to the body. When does a plastic surgeon get involved? When would an emergency room doctor start calling a plastic surgeon to help with the situation? Yeah, so open fractures of the face. And open fracture means? Meaning that like bone is exposed and you're looking at essentially the internal components of, of the, the face. And so the, the reason why it's so important to, that we get involved early is to 
limit infection and to get everything cleaned out and try to kind of reorient the, the anatomy um, both anatomically and render the the best function mo- moving forward and we, we were on kind of the crosshairs of I-70 and Highway you know, 63 in, in Columbia, so we saw a lot of kind of blunt uh, facial trauma, and I, I think... Oh, car accidents. Car yeah. accidents, yeah. And I, I think the most impressive one that I remember was uh, I got a call from the, the chief resident when I was on plastic surgery, and he said, we need to get you guys here ASAP this patient's facial bones are dust and i'm like what you know you know you're (laughs) you're always a little bit skeptical especially coming from another field and and he's like no i'm not joking his face his facial bones are dust based on this scan and what happened was uh, it it was a stolen vehicle and Mm -hmm. a, a patient high on on drugs that crashed into a tree and a huge trunk of the tree came through the vehicle and hit him right in in the middle of the face and oh my goodness and the best analogy that I could make walking into the trauma bay is that the face truly looked like the predator and I don't know if you've oh, ever God. seen that seen that movie oh, but yeah. just a wide opened face just completely yeah. flared open all the way from you know, eye sockets down to, you know, really non-existing nose, the mm-hmm. mid-face and, you know, the maxillary sinuses uh, just wide open and the mandible, their, the jawbone essentially split oh, into okay. two. And so then, you know, th- those are the, you know, very complicated cases where you, you kind of have to go from the known areas and kind of build in to kind of reconstruct the face and obviously this was going to be a project that was done over the course of months to, to years but um, that, that was probably the most impressive yeah, uh, facial trauma I saw over, over the course of my, of my career. So how do you plan that out and approach that? You start with the skeletal structures first, you want to get that as a basis first? So this being where there literally was not enough bone stock to essentially reconstruct anything in real time. So, you know, priority number one was controlled bleeding. Once bleeding was controlled and, you know, we deemed that the patient was stable and obviously going through all the trauma algorithms and making sure that there are no other life-threatening, you know, injuries, mm-hmm. then it became, all right, we need to get this cleaned out. First and foremost, you can imagine a tree going through a face is not going to create a clean environment. So cleaning it out and seeing what is salvageable, what is not, and then really the first phase of it is just soft tissue coverage. How do we get mm-hmm. the soft tissue Fleshy part. back together to essentially give yourself the opportunity to do various facets of reconstruction da- down the road? And mm-hmm. so that was really the main goal that night was to mm-hmm. stabilize, wash out, and then get soft tissue coverage. And eventually mm-hmm. we went back and did what's called free tissue transfer. So transferring bones and soft tissue from other parts of the body to the face to essentially reconstruct all the various components of the face. A long drawn out case, of course, as you were alluding to, uh, just stage by stage, trying to layer by layer reconstruct or recreate the face for that person, which is pretty amazing. And that's one example of trauma cases where a plastic surgeon would definitely be involved. 
And, you know, in my experience, I found even for less severe injuries like that, most times when the emergency room department didn't know what to do with a wound, they would call plastic surgery because they know that we are skilled at finding a way to get coverage of a wound, to close a wound, even when some of the tissue is missing, or reconstruct the contour and form of the area. Uh, so it really is interesting all the variety of things you may be called to the ER for. And I, I don't know about you, but in a way that is kind of what drew me to this field is that we'll just give breast reconstruction as an example. If you're doing 50 cases, you're really not doing the exact same thing. Each time. You know, and that applies to really every component of the body and the complexity of the hand, the complexity of the face. And that really is what makes yeah. it fun is because you have to figure it out. Yeah, it is a puzzle, isn't it? It is. Uh, almost everything within our field, I mean, there are more kind of cookie cutter procedures and things like that. But most sure. of the things in our field is kind of embracing creativity and solving problems. And in mm -hmm. general, our, our field is sometimes tasked with solving the, the problems that other subspecialists just need help with. And that's where yeah. it, it's fun to be able to collaborate and offer value to the, those other service lines when, when they're needing assistance. I agree. And that is one of the great appeals of the field of plastic surgery is that versatility and that need for creativity. Uh, and I think it pulls a lot of people into it because of that. So just as you say, um, you know, I'm thinking of other... Um, Trauma cases that I've seen, you know, certainly being in the Midwest, we would see our fair share of farm injuries and, you know, horrible auger injuries to the arm and trying to reconstruct arms. And, and then you would get the 4th of July cases with blast injuries to the face and the hand. And uh, gosh, even snowblower injuries we would see as well, trying to put fingers back together that get caught in the snowblower. So my goodness. Um, but you touched on breast reconstruction. Let's let's talk about that just a little bit. Um, could you uh, maybe describe the just briefly the spectrum of options that are available for reconstructing a breast? And then do you maybe recall a case, maybe a compelling case of where you really were able to change someone's outlook or or life, even uh, by what you were able to do for reconstruction? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so th there's many options, and uh, and th that goes back to w what is fun about plastic surgery. It's listening to the patient and trying to figure out what option is is the best fit for what what their goals are. And so, the the two main pathways of reconstruction are implant based reconstruction, and the other pathway is using your own tissue. So whether you're mm -hmm. transferring the belly or whether you're transferring the inner thighs or the back, when you're moving tissue from one part of the body to another. So essentially totally disconnecting tissue and plugging it into blood flow at a different site to confer. Yeah, so hooking it up to an artery and vein under a microscope yeah. to get blood supply to it. And you can make a breast out of it. That's what's fascinating. Yeah. And so two main pathways, either using tissue or using implant-based options uh, for, for reconstruction. And a big thing that determines it outside of, you know, essentially patient preference is radiation. The way that we think through radiation is it's designed to, you know, 
burn those cancer cells out, out of the breast. Mm-hmm. But you know what you find is that the tissue doesn't ever behave normally. And so you know you ask for kind of a challenging or rewarding case I had, and what it, in general what I find is that the most challenging cases are the ones when the the patients have needed radiation. One of the ones that sticks with me because uh, the the patient gives me a big hug and Aww. usually cries every every time she comes in. She's and so happy. Is uh, it was a patient I met in small town uh, Kansas who really thought she didn't have any other options of reconstruction. She had had a, a radiated breast that essentially had failed implant-based attempts at reconstruction, and um, she had had previous abdominal or belly surgery, so she wasn't a candidate for some of the bigger surgeries of transferring that up, and so. You know, the surgeon did the the best that they could and transferred the back, meaning one of the big kind of fan-shaped muscles on on the back called the latissimus dorsi Mm -hmm. muscle with some skin to the the front of the chest. And um, you could tell it was just a very challenging case. The patient had very thin tissue that was left and had a lot of radiation damage and did not resemble a breast at all. Yeah. And yeah. so that's kind of demoralizing. Yeah. And you know, when when you hear patients saying that, you know, I can't be intimate with my husband, it's things yeah. that you don't even think about with, yeah. within the realm of, you know, medicine. But, you know, the the impact that these things have on on patients' lives is profound. And so you know, we put together a stage plan to readvance the flap and fat graft and, you know, really work on kind of rejuvenating that, that tissue. And it's been one of the most rewarding experiences in my career, just seeing the smile on her face. And she always keeps her appointment, you know, every year. And So you were able to make a, a much more appealing breast or something that actually looked like a breast out of the tissue she had left. That's phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, you changed her life. That's wonderful. Those are the the fun ones, and you don't do some of those reconstructive cases because they're easy, but it's really getting people to that end point where they're they're happy is what what drives you to keep going. It's not always easy to do, but clearly with perseverance and good skills, you can sometimes get there, so congratulations. How about skin cancers? You know, sometimes we think of those as just basic little things that we just take off, but occasionally they can be quite sizable and problematic because we're worried there's not going to be enough tissue to close over after we remove the malignant tissue. Are there any cases that uh, come to mind with that? The two more impressive ones I I can think of, uh, one was a patient that came into the office and you knew something was going on just by the odor. And oh, so yeah. this patient had a basal cell skin cancer that he let grow for about 25 years on his back and mm-hmm. his shoulder that was probably the size of a, of a volleyball. And normally a basal cell cancer is pretty slow growing and quite curable if you catch it at the right time and just remove it when it's small. Absolutely. And you know, the, the odor was because this mass had gotten so big that the inner part of the mass was, was dying as this mass was, was spreading out. And so coming up with, with a plan and going through all the 
imaging that, that you need to to make sure that it hasn't spread elsewhere and that, that you feel like you can locally control the disease. You know, that, that was one of the more impressive ones just because of the sheer size of it. Um, the, the other ones that were, were very impressive were some of the, the ones on the top of the head uh, just because those can be very challenging due to the possibility of exposed skull. And we, we had some large melanomas, some large oh, yeah. squamous cells, you know, and we've kind of hit the whole scope of complexity you know, along the, the most common skin cancers being kind of basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma. It's a big hole that you have to think through how, how you fix. And mm-hmm. sometimes you're able to move tissue around. We got pretty creative with some of the rotational flaps of the scalp, but once again, on occasion, we had to lean on microvascular transfer, meaning moving tissue from one part of the body to the other. And you know, uh, this also reminds me of other types of cancers, not necessarily skin cancers, but different cancers throughout the body that are going to require a significant amount of tissue to be removed, sometimes just soft tissues like you know muscle and skin and fat, but other times bone as well and some structural areas. And that may be performed by a different specialty. Maybe ear, nose, and throat would remove a significant cancer from the head and neck area, uh, or you know, a general surgeon on the other parts of the body. Um, but often, plastic surgeons are called to come in and help reconstruct. And so it's really interesting how well we can work with other specialties to kind of collaborate and try to come up with a solution for the patient. Absolutely. And that is the fun part of medicine is getting to collaborate and getting to work with other docs. And I'll tell you, that's probably one of the most fun aspects of my career now being in a multi-specialty practice that's very linked together is that, right? you know, we, we have people that we, we know we can trust, we know we can lean on, and it just creates a very cordial environment of working together towards a uniform outcome. And, you know, we, we see it a lot, especially with some of the craniofacial surgeries around the facial nerve, where we'll, we'll have our neuro-otologist or our uber subspecially trained ENTs, uh, you know, wor- working with... Yeah. You know, our facial aesthetics docs, you know, doing nerve graphs and, you know, doing skull-based approaches to be able to fix these type of things. And But it really is amazing kind of seeing how people can work together and kind of utilize each other's skills towards an end goal. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And that's a wonderful thing about medicine these days is that there is so much knowledge that we have that we really have had to specialize into all these different branches. But it is a great thing when some of those branches can come together and really produce a superior result for the patient's problem. So that's pretty inspiring. Um, Let's see, other things. Uh, You know, of course, lots of burns. My... First day of residency, I, I was, was in the burn unit, and there was a notoriously, we'll just say notoriously challenging uh, burn uh, attending yeah, one of the docs that ran the, the burn unit, and we had a 70% burn come in within like three hours of me being a resident, and very first day, and you know, oh, at your that very point, first, I, oh my gosh, absolutely, and you know, you're you're learning, and you're appropriately scared, and 
you know, as a new resident, you're kind of afraid of your own shadow, you know, and you're, you're not wanting to make a mistake. Yeah. And I, I guess the one thing that I vividly remember about burn is because of all the heat loss of, of these patients when, when they're burnt and when they don't have the skin that's doing the maintaining the, their body temperature, you're doing these cases sometimes with, with the temperature, you know, in the 80s, 90, 90 degrees, because you're trying to keep the patient warm and you're trying to work as quickly and, and efficiently as you can. And my day one, he had me grafting the hand, and which is probably one of the hardest places to graft and, you know, to contour. And, you know, you're thinking about form and, and function um, and I, I'll just say it was a long and arduous day and I, l- I learned a lot and I learned about various ways that I would treat residents <laughs> moving forward that were, were very different. More compassionately, yeah, more, are you saying? <laughs> more compassionate, but, uh, you know, the, that, that was my intro to, to burn. And, and I would say I learned a lot over, over that rotation. And a lot of it is you're, you're thinking about initial coverage and then you're thinking about how do you facilitate function and transitioning to scars, like how those scars, when they're in certain areas, limit function because of the way that scars work and they tend to what we call contract or shorten. For some reason, one of the cases I remember seeing you do was a, an amniotic band case, and you doing like little tiny Z plasties, meaning rearranging the the tissue to make more length. And um, and I, I just remember how intricate it was. And but like that's a big concept within the realm of you know burn contracture is lengthening scars and providing healthy tissue that that crosses joints so that you maintain yeah. all the motion and function. Good memory, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting because when we talk about scar problems, there are the burn scars that are these contractions, you know, as the tissue is healing, it just tightens and tightens and tightens. And that can really stop a joint from moving or stop a function that the patient uh, would normally have. And so we try to create more length and do surgeries to rearrange tissues, as you say, to allow more movement and release that scar tissue. And sometimes it requires skin grafting or tissue rearrangement. But then there are also scar problems where the body just kind of goes haywire when it's trying to heal. And this could be from an injury or from just a, a response to a surgery that we've done. And someone could have something called a hypertrophic scar or a keloid scar. And those can be so challenging because every time you interact with it surgically, it might just come back worse. And have you seen that type of thing in your practice? I think we all probably have, but yes, and I, I I'm always very very cautious of, of how I handle keloids, and as you mentioned, there's a whole scope of scars, and keloids being essentially scars that grow well beyond the bounds of of either an incision or a little trauma, and you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I in a way I call it a curse sometimes because yeah. you, you'll see a patient that had like a, a zit on their face and end up with, you know, an inch size scar that just grows beyond the bounds of it. And, you know, the first thing you want to do as a surgeon most of the time is like, how do I cut that out? How do I help people? Yeah. But, you know, yeah. if that's all you're you're doing, a lot of times you can actually make the problem worse. And so you have to be very strategic about how you handle some of those, especially keloid scars in various areas of the body, because, 
you know, granted, you can always cut them out, close it. You can make it look beautiful on on the day of surgery. But Temporarily. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but but unfortunately, you could you can make the problem a lot worse. I had one, um, I guess, about a month ago, and it, it was a patient who had a traumatic event and uh, was cut behind the ear and had a, a keloid abutting the, the earlobe. And so had a huge scar that was essentially pulling the ear backwards and it was so it becomes almost like a mass yeah it looks like a tumor but it, it was the size of a of a golf ball and like i said if all you're gonna do is cut it out you're not necessarily doing them just so i'm either talking about you know pressure therapy or eventual you know steroid injections or even in extreme case of recurrence like early radiation you know right right after the excision to minimize the risk of recurrence and uh, so we, we cut out the, this keloid and rearrange the tissue, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. talk through all the approaches to minimize mm-hmm. it from recurring. And, you know, the patient came back in the office and the first thing he said is, I want to thank you. I, I have a girlfriend now. And I, I didn't ever feel like I, I could have have a girlfriend with him. And so it's kind of another kind of cool, so cool. cool example of kind of the impact that these things make and unless you can put yourself in their shoes and yeah. you know think through how rough it would be kind of walking around with some of these things it, it's kind of another aspect mm-hmm. of why I feel it can be very rewarding yeah I, I tell you you really hit on a good point there um, because sometimes cases are extremely challenging and you know you don't want to say there's nothing I can do, especially when you try to put yourself in that person's shoes and try to feel what they might be feeling. You really do want to go the extra mile for them and try to do everything under your power to try to help them. And if you feel like you can't help them, then you refer them to someone else you know who might be able to do something for them. So, and that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And, and, I, and I think a lot is, uh, the, I, I think a big key to good surgeons know your limitations know, know what you do well and know what other people can do better than you and I, mm-hmm. I, I think knowing your limits and is a big part of surgical safety but when, when you're talking to the patient I think a big component is, is setting realistic expectations too and mm-hmm. you, you know you're going to encounter some very difficult problems and granted a lot of those you can make better but I think the the key is really communicating and relaying, you know, what what is the extent of you know the change that that you can make, and I, I think that plays in you know well and to just patients being happy and and as you know, communication is the, the the key to most aspects of medicine. It's no no different in plastic surgery than anything else, but absolutely, I, I feel like given the creative nature of what we do, we probably have to spend a little bit more time talking through it and what, what we can do and what those endpoints can look like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to leave things in terms of our conversation about the broad variety of what plastic surgery can do and the versatility that a surgeon has to have. You know, we have to have this good knowledge and this kit of tools, if you will, of surgical techniques that we can try to apply to different situations that are quite varied. So thank you, Dr. Spencer Egan, for being with us today and sharing your knowledge and some of your interesting patient stories with us. Thank you for having me and anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.